What's going on, my friends? Welcome back to Titus Talks. Today, I'm super excited to get to talk to a good friend of ours, Julian. Um, but before I do all that, got to do the the you know the the fun vanity metrics kind of thing. Make sure you find Titus Talks at TitusTalksPodcast.com. It's on YouTube. It's on Apple. It's Spotify, um, Google Podcasts. Make sure you like, you leave a comment, you have five stars, whatever it happens to be to say how much you love all these conversations. Um, and we'll keep doing it. So without any more of that, um, Julian, I'd love for you to um, introduce yourself through our first question. And it's really the simple one is tell us a story. Okay. Yeah, I love I love this opening piece, tell you a story, because I thought, I thought I needed it to have some bearing on what we were then going to talk about. So my story because I feel this is fairly indicative of the rest of my life. Because many years ago, I think I was probably in my early 20s, um, I was into all kinds of different kinds of music. But I was especially at the time into reggae, and especially the old dancehall-style reggae. So I decided to take myself and a friend of mine to um, see Gregory Isaacs, Lover's Rock, um, at a place called The Podium in Vauxhall. Now, every city's got one of these, but Vauxhall is quite an edgy place. So I turn up. I'm really overexcited. And as I go in, I can feel my kind of primal creature self tells me that I'm not on home ground. And I'm becoming more aware of that. But anyway, we walk in. It's a ganja smoke-filled room. All the cliche ticks were there. Everyone's excited. Gregory, as usual, took hours to come on. And while I'm standing there, there are two really tall Rastafari in these amazing outfits. Like they had the they had the pom pom hat and the safari suit, like in a matching fabric. They looked amazing, and they're just enjoying the moment. And then the tallest one—I'm not a very tall guy—kind of turns around and then looks down at me, and he just goes, "You lost." <laughs> I'm like, but it was it was funny and meaningful and profound because he just smiled because like I'm not normally the kind of guys in that kind of place. Yeah. But the one thing that was really interesting was they were really fabulous. And we had a great evening with them, but there were some other people there. There was a lot of edge. There's some people like going, we really don't want you here. And and it I suddenly realized I was thinking about what story I might tell of actually the place where I find myself most often when I feel most alive is in this moment between certainty and uncertainty it is in this kind of these collision points of intersection where I am way out of my depth and actually thinking I have no idea what I'm doing here suddenly but I, th- and I think realistically that moment and that tension and that energy which is terrifying but it's so exhilarating and uh, and I've suddenly realized when I was thinking about it afterwards that I so often have realized I actively put myself in a position where I just really enjoy being in a room with people who just go, what are you doing here? And that I've suddenly realized that's a reoccurring theme for me. So this thing where when I talk to extreme sports people about it or whatever, I have a phrase called losing the edges. There's a moment of immersion in this little intersection point where I think there's just something comes alive in us. And because I live in a creative world and I've lived in a creative world for many, many years, whether it's as a writer or as a kind of art director, I kind of hop between both. And I realize those are always the points when something profound happens. But I know it's obvious, 
but it was just one of those things where I think it helps to remind ourselves in the moment That's what that is and be able to point at it. Because I think my issue with all of us most of the time is we forget to be able to point at that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, well, in the spirit of that, let's put Katie on the spot and have Katie tell us why, why are, why are you here, Julian? Katie, how did, how did we all come together? Well, I think Julian actually reached out to you, Titus, over email. <laughs> and so um, for something that you did with Google, right? And yep. then from there, we sort of got connected and we had um, a really great conversation. And, and Julian started sharing just these brilliant pieces with us <laughs> that were just so different than than the type of pieces we're, we're used to, to dealing with or trying to coax out this, this tone from our writers, this authenticity or this enthusiasm that is sort of void in, in science writing. And, and Julian just sort of stepped into our inboxes with fantastic ideas and um, a fantastic personality that comes across very well in his articles. And so we've, uh, we've been working on a couple of pieces ever since, and, it, and it's been delightful. <laughs> Well, it's awesome too because Katie's always had this, you know, this thesis that biotech is humanity's highest art. And Julian, you and I connected through different professional avenues about trying to communicate. Um, and I told you I run this thing on the side, Bioeconomy XYZ, with this uh, wonderful mastermind behind the whole thing. And that's how we ended up in this conversation. But so, how did so you're a writer, artistic, creative, a whole bunch of things, Julian? How did you end up bringing that together with science? And you've done a ton of stuff. Well, That's science. You see, in yeah. So um, initially, I think I think the, the the reoccurring theme is always that I realised I get asked to go into room and use creative storytelling as a way of making really complicated things simple. I've realised that seems to be a theme, and it initially was around um, brands and businesses that wanted a storyteller about the sustainability, and I'd meet all these amazing sustainability people, and I'm just there as a writer going, "Well, what's the story?" And they told me the engineering. They looked up through the engineering. And frankly, I'm sitting there with a nosebleed. I'm sweating slightly. I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, I have some comprehension. Um, but what I'm just brutally aware of is I couldn't take those conversations into the pub. Typical English person yeah. of Italian. But, you know, that I work on pub rules. Because I've kind of learned the hard way that unless you can describe something, you know, whether it's Einstein saying, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Yeah. I, my version is pub rules. And there's all these amazing people. So I started to have to sit with very engineered, highly rational minds who don't like frivolity. They don't like fluff. And somehow help them find a way to start using language that can unlock the staggering um brilliance of what they do in a way that they weren't seeming to be able to do themselves you know and, and humanize that and so language played a very big part in that and i adore language and the way that we can play with it i especially enjoy language um in its two dimensions because obviously there's language as informational data but then there's um language as emotional data and sentiment and actually playing with those two things and doing it in quite an engineered way with them was a process that started to make me understand a little bit better how I can help people who have to live in a deeply rational, reason-based environment because that's there lies the integrity and the authority of their brilliance but the, and find a way to help them tell a better story. 
And so it started with sustainability. And then I was introduced by um, someone to Professor Anna Middleton at Wellcome Sanger, who was struggling with the same thing with genomics. So genomic materials and communiques and any kind of engagement or communication that was going out was written by clinicians who, again, are remarkable. But they scare the shit out of everybody. <laughs> and the example, oh, yeah, they do. They terrified me. It was a real shame because, for example, there was um, the bit that really brought it home to me because I had my children were much younger at the time. Was there was a piece, uh, and it was for parents whose child had been identified as potentially chromosomal disorders, and they could be brutal. And those parents are in a, a world of hell and guilt for the child and that potential situation. And for all the best intentions, the clinicians have written this piece. And I think it had the word mutation about five times in the first two paragraphs. And you look at it and you, as a human being, you go, what are you doing? Um, so that was where the journey began. So that was where I could take my creative writing skills and my love of this intersection point Myself of being somewhere where I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know there's something in me making me really want to try and figure out what's this bridge and how do you use language at the heart of that and creative storytelling to build bridges that need to be built, you know, to truly accelerate good and the benefits of things. I think I so, have the exact same thing you have, but from the other side, I've always considered myself, a, I've always been a highly technical person, right? I was a scientist and everything. And the over the last probably five years, I've realized I'm actually a creative locked in a technical career. Um, and which is why this whole bioeconomy and this whole podcast and whole thing starts because the power of that communication or not just, yeah. so it's not just writing and words too, like visual display of communication. Yeah. Like when I worked at the, at the Pentagon, I was trying to convince people what kind of, what is a bioproduced brick? Everyone thought little green jello blocks in their head. They couldn't visualize. So I started bringing a brick into meetings and it one created a very visceral reaction. Like this is going to be an intense meeting. And two people were like, Oh, I, it's just a brick. That's not very interesting. I'm like, yeah, it's a brick, but it's cheaper and less like it's good. Um, but you know, it has, it has its pluses and minuses. But one of the, one of the things that really endeared you to us through our engagement is your particular perspective on the gene duck shuffle. And I was wondering if you could use that as an example of how you oh, yeah. give the creative well, experience to communicate complex topics. So um, in the process of looking at all language around genomics or genetic sciences, whichever framing anybody's particularly using, and in reading up on it, there's all these incredible things. And I can see there's amazing pieces of science theory all these things, uh, and all of them could possibly have been a source of a new conversation. And the one that particularly appealed to me, and this is probably where the scientists listening to this will go wrong, um, <laughs> it's the act of procreation as, you know, being part of the evolutionary principle of, you know, improvement and creating health within, uh, the, you know, the genetic makeup. So it keeps, it's how we keep our kind of genetic yeah. selves healthy and procreation because it brings things together, creates those collisions. Um, and it was called Muller's Ratchet. And I just love that as a phrase. Muller's Ratchet had a real physicality to it. But I just thought, actually, what we're really here, what we're actually talking about is sex. And everyone loves sex. <laughs> it's great. 
And sorry, that sounds like really universal. Some people would be going, I don't really like sex. <laughs> um, I would say universally, it's seen as a good thing. But then again, depending which society you're in. Anyway, that was fun. And what I loved was the liberated language with, that people use around that. Um, but then there's this really kind of complex and quite scientific and engineered conversation around Miller's ratchet. And we thought, well, how can we bring that to life? And it was actually just the language that normal human beings use, whether it's a, in the UK, there's a bit of how's your father, all these idioms, knocking boots in the US. There's all these phrases for it. And we thought, well, I wonder if there's a, a way we can bring this together. So the fact that the genes get shuffled, we like the idea that a gene debt shuffle would be just another way for talking about sex. And so, interestingly, the scientists really, well, actually, quite a middle-range group, kind of struggled with that a bit and found it too flippant. Yeah. But what was interesting was the very super seniors immediately went, yeah, I get that. So I think the ability to find language that unlocks conversations, whether it's the gene debt shuffle, depends on the, the degree of playfulness that you have in your audience. What is the kind of language that will unlock something that is a deeply scientific thing just reinvented and something that's playful or cheeky or wears itself lightly or that also might cut through, you know, that might make somebody go, oh, my God, have you seen that thing or have you heard that thing? And I think that's a really basic human truth. So, it's again, it's the same thing. It's that what is the human intersection point where people become people? And I don't know if you find this, but you can see the way people light up when they hear pieces of language or they see a visual, you know, it's the truth of social sharing. I don't know why people talk about let's, let's create a social strategy. I mean, I like to just say it's things that make you go, Ooh, that's a social strategy. That's what people do. Oh my God, have you seen this? You know, that's the truth of it. So I think that's always what I'm looking for. But maybe I do that as a human being. I look for the expressive response in people or just seeing how they're computing something uh, and it usually steers itself. You know, if you're attentive enough and you're open enough and you truly are looking and listening, you get the gifts. But that, again, even in itself is a quite hard journey for some because they're not on. You know, they have to live in quite closed things, which is, I think, half of the problem. Yeah, I think it's, but yeah. I think it's a perfect metaphor. So basically what you're talking about is when people procreate, when they have sex, their genes from the two gametes be technical, um, shift around. So you have diversity, you have genetic diversity, hair color, eye color, yada, yada. But I could see like two people having two different playing cards. When I was growing up, we had playing cards from two different decks because we lost them all. Yeah. They all got mixed together and you take them and you shuffle them together and go, and all of a sudden you have one deck that's a bunch of different cards. So we all have our 52 cards of genes and that shuffle. It's just so, it, I also love poker. So it just like, resonates with me but i think it's a great way to describe a hilarious topic that makes a lot of people squirm which i think is another reason it's wonderful oh and anything that makes people slightly uncomfortable maybe it's back to that tension point again maybe i'm just projecting the thing that i enjoy onto other people suddenly feel really uncomfortable and out of your depth um but no that's a very good point the that sort of visceral primal response i mean i think it, is it daniel kahneman talks about his system one system two yeah i mean that that is very system one response that i tend to point to 
you have to have a plumb line then to the kind of system two side of it, which is rational and constructed. But if those two things aren't engaged fundamentally in any piece of communication, you know, from the experience that I've had of it, you know, it's going to struggle because you've got to trigger that that creature response um, in a way that draws somebody towards whatever it is you want to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing that I would love to to get both your perspectives on, because Julian, you are a creative, you're a writer, you have, lots of people know you for your writing, you have written professionally. Katie, earlier in her career, also a creative, now is the editor of articles you write for us and gives you feedback on your writing. So Katie, for all of the younger people out there who are intimidated by giving well-established people feedback, I'd love your thoughts on like, what was it like the first time you gave Julian editorial feedback on his on his writing. Yeah, I think there's definitely that moment where you're very thankful we're still sort of virtual because you're like, you look at his credentials and you panic a little bit. Like what what advice can I offer to this brilliant individual that is somewhat helpful? And, you know, I, I joke like I have a science degree and a business degree that there's no English in there. And so sort of, you know, as Julian said earlier, like sweating a little bit, freaking out. Um, but, but then from there, I think what's so fun is once you get past that moment, it's you get to sort of dive into his his ideas, and you get to you get the experience of a reader reading something for the first time, and so you get to sort of follow the narrative, and you get to understand and learn something, which is really cool. And then you get to have this moment where you reflect and say, okay, well, what about this, or, or what about this? Because most of my feedback is delivered in the form of questions, and so. Um, What's really great is that I get to ask someone who is brilliant and an expert in their field questions that I think the reader would want to know. And then those get weaved into um, it weaved into the article. So it's a lot of fun for me once you get past that moment of like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, totally. Well, Julian, how about the other side of that coin? You are obviously very welcoming of feedback um, and someone of your status doesn't necessarily have to do that um, or you know, what I would say should. But, you know, you don't have to. And what's it like? Why? How are you? Why are you so nice at well, uh, feedback? <laughs> <laughs> what you mean once I'd ignored Catherine's hatchet job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was at a hot bath and just done some chanting. Um, no, the, the simple truth of it is, I think it's back to know thyself. I mean, I, I love reading, I love writing, but I tend to use words like color i'm not an engineered writer so i will deal with the engineering and the structural side of writing but sometimes um you know the honest truth of it is i can be an absolute shamble of tenses i get far too overexcited sometimes i get halfway through a sentence and and i'm like a small child i get to the end of the sentence it's like a child that goes into massive sort of theme park playground and i know exactly what i'm going to do when i go in there by the end of it i'm slightly dizzy i'm not even sure why i'm there you know that happens in my writing you know i get overexcited you know and even though faultless words you know to murder one's darlings you know i I tend i tend to have all my all around me so i've learned to just be reasonable and truthful to myself and first of all respect the art of the editor because it is a sublime art. I know there are two groups in writing about this, uh, and I th- try and remember the name of the b- a very traditional and um, well-established editor at New York Literary Review, 
And there was an interesting article, article because some writers were like, here it is. I mean, we're talking writers of the highest order, the Fitzgerald of this world and whatever, who would just allow this editor to remove tracts and tracts of their writing because they truly believed in the divinity of editing yeah. as part of the creative process. Whereas there are others who go, no. I mean, I'd love to say that mine was inspired in coming from philosophical um, artistic nature, but m mine is just really more of a truth that uh, I am as much a child in everything I write, sometimes far too much so. And I just have been in enough rooms where people have really surprised me. So I've stopped even seeing whether I think someone should or shouldn't edit me. It's just really helpful to me. I mean, Catherine, it's enormously helpful to me, the way you posit your questions, um, the ideas that you put in, because I think as with all good creative processes, they reveal things to me that I hadn't seen. Because, you know, I miss loads of shit, even in my own stuff and my own ideas. It just goes straight by me. And I, because uh, I take it from a very, uh, maybe a very analytical standpoint. I think feedback is wonderful because I don't have to do all the work. Someone's going to have an opinion. I don't have to put in the brain power to try to predict their opinion. I just ask, what do you think? And they'll say it's shit. I'm like, well, that was direct. I didn't have to spend time wondering if you thought it was good or not. <laughs> <laughs> right? See, that has an economy, an efficiency, yep. and a rigor yep. that is patently absent in me. <laughs> because that would be a better process. But no, I think it really comes down to that. I read writers, you know, and that was actually just rereading some Robert McFarlane, who's the most remarkable writer about the natural world. And there is an integrity and a muscularity to the way what I consider brilliant writers do that I can only ever be in awe of. I kind of generate stuff in my own kind of level of the world and surface in terms of what I do, and I don't discount it, and I don't demean it, but I am very aware of the high art of writing to me is something that I will forever be a student in, in whichever shape or form I'm doing it. But also that um, uh, I, I always benefit from somebody else's point of view because I think it improves um, immeasurably what I do. That's awesome. Well, this is plenty of advice, but I'd love our kind of last focus for the, for the remainder of our time to get some advice from you. You know, you have lots of thoughts. They're wonderful thoughts. And this is as open-ended as tell us a story. Like, what advice do you have for the world and more specifically uh, us and our listeners? Well, I think uh, the one thing that I've noticed recently is, uh, and I, your listeners may find this, I tend to find that there are certain books or pieces or people that I go back to. Um, you know, for example, um, Carlo Rovelli is one of those people that it has the most remarkable ability to take deep physics and render it with such lyrical humanity. That, and I tend to always go back to people like that. So I would always say that sometimes, not always necessarily looking for the new, because I think we should always do this in ourselves. Sometimes go back to the old, back to the previous, sometimes to remind ourselves why we were attracted to something, instead of always trying to find the answer to what we're trying to, you know, decipher it's something new and something present you know be it remember to look along your lifeline and be really clear about things that might have inspired you uh, and i'd always say go to the place of most discomfort which you is know, also it, why you love cold water swimming as well right you like it in every aspect of your life discomfort yeah yeah because it gives me well 
either as my children say they think I'm slightly crazy. Um, but yeah, there there is a thing. Well, the cold water swimming, clarity of Saint Cuthbert. Whatever you do, maybe that's a, that's a very good way of putting it. So the cold water swimming or diving into books where I they're incomprehensible to me. I mean, Daniel C. Dennett, I love. It takes me two thirds of every book, so I have the faintest idea what I'm reading, what I'm doing, and but always out of that discomfort comes something that is revelatory and just you know you just got to push yourself in there and um i think maybe if i was ex- a, a, at an exceptional arc point or in a very sort of particular vertical of expertise um it might be different and i wouldn't be the nature of person that i am but because i have to live across multiple dimensions and with very different kind of stakeholder groups um I'm forced to have to always be open valve. So discomfort is maybe a natural position. But I would always say to anyone, seek it out. Seek it out because in your darkest moments, actually making yourself more uncomfortable would probably be the most productive thing that you could do. Wow, that's great. That's awesome. Well, Julian, I appreciate it. I'm going to, I think it's time we start wrapping up, but this is wonderful. Thank you for all of the writing that you do for bioeconomy. Thank you for being on our podcast. We're going to do lots of other cool stuff together over the years. So um, everyone will have links to some of Julian's uh, creative thinking uh, in all of the descriptions and everything. But remember to find the podcast, TitusTalksPodcast.com, Apple, Google, Spotify. Um, And Julian, we really appreciate your time. Pleasure. I've loved it.